0: you will, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We're going to read in just a moment verses 1 through 18. Again, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, and we'll begin in just a moment in uh, verse 1. Uh, In preparation for our uh, observation, for our participation in the two ordinances, namely Baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, coming next Sunday, uh, I have chosen to do basically a two-part series uh, on the ordinances. Last week, uh, we looked at the, uh, uh, the rite, the ordinance of baptism, uh, and how it is uh, uh, the ordinance uh, that is performed on a candidate uh, upon their confession of faith In the Lord Jesus Christ, it is it is initial, and it is uh, once and for all. It's not to be uh, repeated again and again. But the second ordinance, being given uh, to the church, is that of the Lord's Supper, and it is to be uh, repeated at uh, regular intervals and is to be incorporated into uh, our worship as the ongoing testimony uh, to the to the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gospel accounts tell us about uh, the night before our Lord would be crucified. How that he uh, very intentionally and very meticulously gathered uh, those disciples around him uh, for a uh, celebration, for participation uh, in the Passover meal. And in the course of that meal, he announces that he is basically uh, reinterpreting, uh, giving new meaning to this concept of Passover. He mentions that uh, there is the new covenant in his blood. Now, to be sure, the disciples did not understand fully what he was uh, revealing to them. It's by looking back that we have uh, the understanding that by... Uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection through his shed blood, our Lord Jesus Christ was establishing that which was promised under the older covenant he was He was inaugurating uh the new covenant, which is uh, uh the celebration of an even greater Passover because what is celebrated is an even greater exodus uh that that the rites within that covenant uh, are performed by a greater priest who offered a greater even perfect ultimate and final sacrifice and so we live in the light of the greater uh, promises and privileges of this covenant uh, inaugurated uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ and so each time that we gather and we take of those very very simple elements the the juice and, and the bread Uh, We are, in effect, proclaiming by way of drama the life and the death, the sacrificial work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, to be sure, it is the Word of God that informs us, that gives us the understanding, the appreciation, uh, the meaning uh, for these ordinances. Apart from the Word, uh, baptism would be nothing more than a washing Uh, apart from the word uh, the the elements of the Lord's Supper would be no more than a very simple snack but because God has revealed to us and said to us that as we do these things as we reflect upon these things we are to remember the gospel and the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross So let's look at the the second part, the second ordinance today, uh, the Lord's Supper, the gospel on display. Verse 1, Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer offering for sin. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your truth, uh, for the Word of God, uh, Lord, it is that which is sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that your spirit that inspired these words would take this very word and and divide among us today the joints and the marrow. Lord, that, that I would be able to communicate faithfully and accurately uh, that which you have given to us and that your spirit would so work in us that... That you would illuminate our minds to understand that you would shape our hearts and our wills so that we would obey. Again, for the good of our souls, but ultimately for your own glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most students of the Bible uh, would be uh, a bit overwhelmed, overcome uh, by... Uh, the study of the book of Hebrews, in that uh, this unknown, unnamed author does uh, the church a great favor in that he helps us to understand how all that went on under the old covenant actually anticipated, uh, looked forward to uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how Those things, while powerful and important at their time, they have served their purpose. Now they are obsolete because they have all been perfected. Everything that they pointed to has been accomplished in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we no longer offer sacrifices? It is because the one ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice that actually could atone has now been offered. And so that which couldn't ultimately be accomplished through the offering of animals has been accomplished through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His coming as the incarnate Son of God, uh, living a a perfect life that we could not uh, live and dying as a substitute, paying the penalty for our sin. And so let's look beginning in verse 1. The writer tells us that the law was essentially uh, a, a dim picture, a, a faint witness of what Christ uh, would ultimately accomplish. He's going to explain to us the futility of this Old Covenant system there in verses 1 through 4. The picture that I have in my mind of this phrase, the shadow of the good things to come, maybe you have watched a motion picture, a western in which you see off in the distance of the uh, movie screen a rising sun. And then you see a kind of a cloud of dust. Something's coming. Someone's coming. And then you begin to see a rather shadowy figure. And you look and, what is that coming towards me? What is that coming towards me? And ultimately you realize that it's a, a, a cowboy. And he's riding on a horse. Now you don't know who the cowboy is, and, and you don't know what he's coming to do, but, but but in that shadow that's backlit by that rising sun, you get the image of someone is coming. And, and that in some sense is, is, is descriptive of what goes on under the old covenant. They, they saw something of the, the workings of God and the glory of God, but they did not understand fully how God was going to do that which God was going to do, namely, forgive sins. And so, looking uh, there, they could see in the shadows a man. A man whose name is Jesus Christ. They, they didn't fully understand all that God was uh, commanding them, but, but certainly Jesus could again say of Abraham, the man who actually preceded the giving of the law at Sinai, that he saw my day. He saw the shadow. He knew that there was a reconciler. He knew that there was a redeemer. He knew that there was a purpose to the endless giving of sacrifice, although he didn't fully understand. Again, uh, for uh, Peter, in writing his epistle, said, you know, the, the prophet's, they understood something, but they just they longed, they groaned over the. Face. I know that God is doing something, but I don't fully understand how He's going to do that which is suggested uh, through these uh, old uh, sacrifices. And so the law is ultimately, it's true. It, it was good. The regulations were were good but they were inadequate to ultimately saved and they did not fully communicate everything that God was going to do in order uh, to forgive uh, sins. And so the reality is the true form there in verse 1, the true form is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these symbols and signs and ceremonies given under the Old Covenant are no longer... Uh, needed they 're no longer uh, useful, and so he goes on to basically speak of the impotence of the old covenant sacrifices. now, to be sure, these sacrifices were required they were commanded by by God but but the reality was that they could never perfect, they could never save, they could never make whole even the worshiper who was Trusting in God, there was something beyond their physical bringing of that sacrifice to the tabernacle and the temple Again, it was required, it was commanded, but it simply was looking forward to that which could ultimately save as this writer uh, will, will tell us they they were so inadequate that, that they that they kept uh, being offered uh, year after year, if, if, if they had been effective, if, if the soul had been ultimately cleansed, well, then they wouldn't have come back next year to offer another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice. And so that these, these sacrifices pictured uh, the, the reality of salvation, of forgiveness, but they did not accomplish the reality of forgiveness and salvation. In essence, in verse 3, they were a constant reminder. They were a constant reminder of the guilt of the worshiper, the need for atonement, the the need for one who would bear the weight of the guilt and the sin. And so he he very simply sums up there in in verse 4. It's impossible. There there is not enough blood in all the bulls and all the goats and all the world to actually atone for sin. It is an impossibility that that shed blood could actually forgive. Now, again, they symbolized, they foreshadowed, they, 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 they instructed the Old Testament, the Old Covenant worshiper, of the need for forgiveness, and the reality of their sin. But it could not accomplish that which it suggested in its shadowy way. So let's, look, let's move forward then. So you have the futility of the old covenant system, that, that, that which they were doing could not ultimately accomplish salvation. But we see here, beginning in verse 5, the fulfillment of God's purpose. The fulfillment of what was suggested that which was hinted at in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so you see beginning there in verse 5, consequently, that's, it's the same Greek word that's translated therefore. Okay, so for this reason, for, for this particular uh, purpose, then uh, God has done what he's about to describe uh, as following. And what he's going to do, He is going to appeal to a psalm of David and let us understand that David, uh, in some sense, was speaking to himself. He was praising God for the confidence he has in God as his deliverer. But he's also speaking prophetically of one who is to come after him, the one who shall be the ultimate and final uh, fulfiller of that Davidic covenant to have uh, that son who would rule and reign forever. And so we see that the the old uh, covenant sacrifices, they they couldn't ultimately uh, please God. But we have the promise of an incarnate son of God there in the quote that's in the inset there, in Psalm, that is Psalm chapter 40, verses uh, 6 through 8. And so the psalmist says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, David is very familiar that at a practical level, the reason he is the king is that that while Saul had in mind offering a sacrifice upon his defeat of the Amalekites, he actually directly disobeyed the word of God instead of destroying uh, the booty of that raid upon the Amalekites. He kept the best and refused to kill uh, the king of the Amalekites. And so Samuel, with great grief, had to go to Saul and indict him and say this, that obedience is far better than sacrifice. God has always demanded obedience. And we find throughout the, the prophetic books of the Old Testament, God is simply essentially, essentially saying in many ways through many writers, Your gathering for worship and your actual offering of the sacrifices that are commanded make me sick because you you draw near with all of this stuff but your hearts are distant from me. You're you're harboring sin. you're, You're harboring rebellion against me. You're thinking that by going through the motions that I am going to be pleased with you. But in fact, your offerings, instead of pleasing me, they infuriate me. And so the psalmists speak, again, prophetically. They put these words on the lips of the Lord Jesus. But a body you've prepared for me. Again, sacrifices and offerings cannot accomplish that which they suggest, but a body. You have prepared for me. That, that is Jesus Christ saying that I am going to come and I am going to be incarnate. I am going to be born of the Virgin Mary. As we've looked at a number of times over the years in Philippians chapter 2 in this great psalm, hymn, confession as to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, it describes Him as what? Being obedient unto death. He came incarnate he came in a body that had been prepared for him that he would come and do that which god had ordained for him to do again verse 6 repeats that same thing that that these offerings they do not accomplish that which they suggest but again jesus speaks in verse 7 again prophetically i have come to do your will you cannot help but just let your mind go to that time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. After again, reinterpreting that Passover event, re- reestablishing how that is going to be utilized by, by God's people going into the future, we find Jesus praying, and we're told that, that, that sweat drops of blood poured from his face because of the intensity of the agony that he was feeling overdoing the will of God, overdoing what in eternity past had been determined he would take upon himself this body and come into the world and be brutalized in that body and hung on a cross for our salvation. And so he prays, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Let, let, let my reception of your divine, holy, just wrath pass for me if possible. But not my will, but your will be done. A complete surrender to the obedience of the plan of God which had been agreed upon before all worlds were created. And this was what was written of Jesus Christ. Every book of the Old Testament looks forward to the incarnate Son of God coming and doing exactly what Father, Son, and Spirit had determined would be accomplished in the course of time and space. 2,000 years ago, in dusty old Palestine, the Son of God would come and accomplish and perfect the will of God. And so again, there in verse 8, he goes on to remind us of the same thing, that yes, in obedience uh, to the law, these, these things uh, have been sacrificed. And then again, verse 9, But behold, I have come to do your will. In doing God's will, In doing what had been prescribed, in doing that which had been ordained, had been predestined when he accomplished what was according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Okay? That's what Jesus came to do. In doing that, he does away with the first order to establish the second. The old order is now obsolete. Those sacrifices are absolutely Meaningless. There's no no place for them. There's no need even to foreshadow. There's no longer the need for the shadow of the ultimate reality because the ultimate reality has come in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say maybe a quick word about the concept of, of covenants. We talked about our identity in Adam, our identity in Christ last week. Adam is essentially a covenant breaker. Jesus Christ is the ultimate covenant keeper. If you'll remember, Adam is placed in the garden under a covenant of works, okay? You're to obey me, you're to do these things, and you're not to eat of the tree. And Adam rebelled against God, he became a sinner, and all of his descendants became sinners. And God chose, instead of wiping the human race off the face of the earth, that He would establish a covenant of grace by which He would save men and women, the descendants of Adam, that deserved to be damned to hell forever. He would save them through the shedding of blood. If you'll remember the story, they knew they were guilty, and what did they do? They tried to cover their guilt and their shame. Mankind, through all types of efforts and attempts and shenanigans, has always been trying to cover their shame on their own. They took essentially fig leaves and tried to cover themselves. And God says, I will cover you. And an animal was killed. His blood was shed. The first blood that was shed foreshadowing the ultimate blood that would be shed. He covered temporarily and and temporally their guilt and their shame, but it was looking forward to what? An offering that could actually cover their guilt and their shame. And so, God revealed Himself uh, in various covenants through the course of time. Uh, he he uh, get, offers a Noahic covenant I'm not going to destroy the, the, the world by water again, uh, I, uh, and, and you're going to count mankind as important, I'm not going to murder. Then He calls Abraham and enters into this unconditional covenant you're my man, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendants, okay? And then he takes those descendants and he nurtures them into this great nation in the land of Egypt and then he determines that he is going to take them, he's going to deliver them through the means of exodus, through the shedding of blood, through the Passover, they're going to leave behind and he is going to put them under a temporary covenant, established As Sinai, so that they may live and prosper in the land. But there are many flaws and many faults, not with the covenant or the covenant maker, but with the covenant keeper. The Israelites were not covenant keepers. They broke the covenant time and time and time again. And God did exactly what He said He would do. And so even as the prophets begin to speak to all of the issues related to the rebellion of the nation of Israel, Jeremiah particularly begins to look forward to the day that there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a new covenant. It's going to supersede. It's going to render obsolete. It's going to take the place of this older covenant. And some of this stuff kind of blows my mind. I'll be fair with you, so I'm trying to be as simple as I can. But in chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews begins to speak of the covenant as a will, a will. And we know enough about wills that wills are just a piece of paper. It doesn't really have any meaning, no binding character until what? The person who made the will dies. Okay, it's not put into effect. You don't own nothing that the person uh, who uh, uh, died uh, owned until they die. And so, by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that old covenant is rendered obsolete, and the new covenant, the, the will, so to speak, is put into place because Jesus Christ has died to inaugurate and establish this new age, this new era, this new covenant. Okay? So that old has passed away. It served its purpose, it, but, it, but it was so limited. And it was primarily for a nation to order their lives and order their business so that God would bless them in the land. They would be the great nation, but yet what? They failed. And God knew what would happen as a part of his working out of all things for his glory, they failed to live up to the terms of this old covenant. And all through the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, you get these reminders. I was really glad to save you out of Egypt. That was a great thing. But I'm going to be just as glad to kill every one of you if you don't obey me. And so what happened? God destroyed them. They disobeyed. They rebelled. But it held its place. That covenant remained in force and it's held its place so that the promised seed of the woman, the descendant of Abraham, the king descended from David, could be born and take his rightful place. And so all of those stipulations and all those regulations, they're done away with in Christ because he did what? His blood ratified a new covenant. Remember what Moses did at Sinai? Sprinkled the nation with blood and said, this is the blood of the covenant. And so this, this new covenant has been sealed with nothing less than the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has done away with the old, the old covenant, the first covenant. And he has established, he's put into place and put into force through his death, this will by which we shall be extraordinarily blessed. He's given us the privileges of living under a new covenant. So look at verse 10. And so the upshot of that, by that will, by carrying out the will of God, and by putting into force this covenant, this will, in in Greek, will and covenant are the same Greek words, okay? So, again, by, by accomplishing that will, we have been sanctified. Now, we have been made holy. Now, anytime I mention the concept of sanctification, I say two or three things. First of all, sanctify and holy are from the same Greek word, hagios. Okay? Sanctification is the reality of both having been made holy and being made holy. In terms of our status before God, our standing, our identity... Through the offering of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, His shed blood, this writer can say we have been sanctified. That is, we've been made holy. We've been made acceptable to God once and for all through that offering. Now, to be sure, that implies an ongoing reality, a process by which experientially in time and space we become more like Jesus Christ. We increase our practical, our experience of holy character. But again, we have been set apart. We have been rendered righteous. The accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does away with that old covenant, establishes this new covenant, and He does it through the offering of His body. Again, what do we say about the little elements? This is my body. It was necessary that he have a body to come accomplish the will of God for us. Okay? And so, the offering of the body of Christ, once and for all. Once and for all. One sacrifice through the shedding of his blood in, as this writer will explain to us, a better priest and the heavenly tabernacle a more perfectly tabernacle enters into the ultimate holy of holies to offer the sacrifice not of blood of bulls and goats but his own blood so that we really can be made holy so that our consciences really can be cleansed and because that is ultimate and that's final and it is effective there's no longer a need there's no longer a need for any of the other we're commanded to remember it in in those elements, in these ordinances. We are to remember the the accomplishment once and for all, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's move forward the finality of the person and work of Christ. Beginning there in verse 11, the writer reminds us, the priest never gets off duty. There are no chairs in the tabernacle. There, there are no chairs in the temple uh, to take a, a, a Coke break. There, there, there's not because they are constantly, literally millions of animals were sacrificed in the course of the history of Israel. They, that they actually uh, had a had a trough flowing out of the temple into the the uh, brook Kidron, and it would absolutely be filled with so much blood that that stream would run red with the blood of the sacrificial animals. And so these priests are constantly offering, there were at least five different offerings that had to be made under the Old Covenant. And so they were always busy. They were always busy. They were always sacrificing. And so the writer wants us to understand the contrast between the priest of the old order and the priest of the superior order of whom? Machiseldech. This superior order that actually was in place before the order of Aaron was established, Jesus Christ is of that priestly descent. No, he's not a Levite. He's of the tribe of Judah. They don't serve as priests. Oh, wait a minute. He is a priest of an eternal order, of a superior order, the order of Machiseldech. And so when this priest offers his sacrifice, he doesn't keep on offering sacrifices. He does what the writer says in the first chapter. He offers his sacrifice and does what? He sits down at the right hand of the Father, the place of honor and the place of power, because his work of sacrifice is completed. It's finished. OK? So we can I listed seven things real, real quickly about the contrast. Number one, the priest never rest. They're offering constant sacrifices. Remember, he's already said, well, you've got to keep offering those sacrifices. It has not ultimately accomplished the purpose of sacrifice. It hasn't really atoned for sin. It only can look forward to the one who will atone for sin. And now, the one who can and has atoned for sin has come and done that which those sacrifices look forward to. Because those sacrifices can't atone for, for sin. Christ offered the single effective sacrifice. It is sufficient. It is effective to actually save from sin. And so Christ has now sat down. And notice there, He has sat down and He is awaiting the destruction of His enemies. In Genesis 49, we see Jacob making prophecies about his descendants. And he identifies those of the tribe of Judah and he speaks of the fact that they will rule we begin to get this glimpse of a ruling and reigning Messiah that comes into to fuller focus uh, in the promises made to David that Davidic uh, covenant and we see in Psalm 2 the coronation Psalm that, that he will rule and he will reign and it is the wisest thing that you can do To make your peace with this ruling and reigning king. And so, Jesus is uh, at the right hand of the Father. He's offered that sacrifice. He's sat down, and now he's waiting. Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Okay? And so, Jesus is... the appropriate time of His return. Now, as we look at the world, all of history has been woven woven according to the design of Almighty God for Jesus Christ to ultimately destroy all of those who rebel against us, or against Him. And so it, it seems to me, as I look at history, I look at the contemporary world, and I see all of the chaos that's going on. That the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and wickedness of men. That we're seeing a foreshadowing of the wrath to come according to the insanity of the people of this world. And so there's a, there's a kind of preliminary judgment that is the withdrawing of the with, with restraining grace of God or restraining grace of, of God. And we are setting ourselves up For the return of Christ and His ultimate destruction of all that opposes Him as the rider on the white horse who destroys all of His enemies with the sharp sword of His mouth. Revelation 19. So, Jesus is awaiting the appropriate time. Preliminary work is already being done. Because The unbeliever is under God's condemnation. It is an active process taking place on the unbelievers we speak here today. But he's awaiting that day of his triumphant uh, return. And so, he awaits. Look at verse 14. Again, the reminder. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We have been made perfect. That once and for all, made holy by the blood of Christ. And what? We're being sanctified. They go together. You can't separate them. You can't say, well, I am uh, uh, objectively sanctified. I have a status of of a holy one. If there's not the process that reflects that status reality. Status and process go together. They're married in the life of of the believer and so the Holy Spirit speaking initially through the prophet Jeremiah and others but this is a quote from Jeremiah in verse 16 it's the second time he's appealed to that but he's saying now remember he's saying for the benefit of of some Jews that had come to know Christ that Jesus is the ultimate outcome of that which was anticipated even the prophets spoke of Jesus and His new covenant, and you only have to look at the terms, There are superior terms and superior privileges, namely, I'm going to put my laws on their hearts. I believe that's saying that, that this covenant, where, where the old covenant was external, and just external regulations, that, that it did not have the power to transform the heart. But by the new covenant, God begins to work in the heart and mind of that worshiper, of the new covenant saint, so that they live out the implications of God's law, because by the work, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is a part of the new covenant, which makes it the better covenant, the superior covenant, then we live, at least in pursuing the obedience Christ. Pursuing the the will and the way of, of God. And here's the thing. Look at verse 17. No more sacrifices. Why? I've removed their sin as far as the east is from the west. That, 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 this, this is a done deal. The terms of the... You don't, you don't need to be reminded of your sin and your guilt and to come before me with a sacrifice in your hand and hand it over to the priest and watch that priest slit its head and its blood drain out. No. The final sacrifice has been offered and sin has been forgiven and it has been removed from your presence. You're never going to be ju- under the judgment of sin again because it has been judged and it has been forgiven in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, guilt couldn't be removed. I've got to keep offering stuff. I've got I to get more sacrifice. I've got to go back to the temple. I've got I to take a sacrifice so I can have a right standing before God. New covenant, there's one final and ultimate sacrifice. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. He died in my place. He received the punishment that I deserve. He established this new and superior covenant in which there are better promises and better privileges for all who believe. And so, notice verse 18, kind of an upshot there, final word. Where there's forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where sin is forgiven, there's no need. Why is it forgiven? blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' last words on the cross, translated into English, one Greek word, it is finished, tetelestai, tetelestai, a Greek perfect, once and for all done with ongoing implications all the way up into eternity. It is finished. No more sacrifices are necessary. I have done what I said. I have established this new covenant. And so, the writer of Hebrews says, just kind of as a a way of closing, there's a therefore. There is a therefore. Look at verse 19. It's beyond my my text. What What are the implications of this? we have confidence to enter the holy place. We come before God. We have been made righteous in Christ. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And so verse 22, the writer can say, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of the faith. Do not be like that high priest that entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and did not know if he would come out alive. But because of the blood of Christ, we may come before the throne of grace, confident that he—he's not standing there. Oh, I remember your sin. I remember your sin. I remember your sin. Let me let me get my record book out. Let me. You remember this? You remember that? You remember this one? Uh-uh. They have been forgotten and they have been forgiven through the once and for all accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, when we gather on this next Sunday, we will be reminded. That through the once and for all offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of His blood represented in those two very, very simple symbols, all that is ours in the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel on display. The gospel dramatized. The gospel proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your goodness, for your grace, for this testimony of your goodness, of of your genius in accomplishing a plan in which your glory would be displayed. The glory of your wrath regarding sin, the glory of your love and your mercy and your grace towards sinners who repent. That, that, that those who come to Christ are once and for all through one single act made acceptable to a holy God. That is indeed good news. Let us draw near with hearts of full assurance because of Jesus Christ.